Hello, folks, and welcome back to Bible in a Year. Today is day 332. As you can tell, my voice is not doing so great, but uh, I don't want to get too far behind. And I'm sure that some of you are anxious for new recordings, so I'm going to try my best to do day 332. The first reading is 2 Maccabees chapters 3 through 4. While the holy city was inhabited in broken peace, and the laws were very well observed because of the piety of the high priest, Onias, and his hatred of wickedness, it came about that the kings themselves honored the place and glorified the temple with the finest presents, so that even Seleucus, the king of Asia, defrayed from his own revenues all the expenses connected with the service of the sacrifices. But a man named Simon of the tribe of Benjamin, who had made captain of the temple, had a disagreement with the high priest about the administration of the city market. And when he could not prevail over Onias, he went to Apollonius of Tarsus, who at that time was governor of Cilicia and Phoenicia. He reported to him that, tre that the treasury in Jerusalem was full, of, was full of untold sums of money, so that the amount of the funds could not be reckoned, and that they did not belong to the account of the sacrifices, but that it was possible for them to fall under the control of the king. When Apollonius met the king, he told him of the money about which he had been informed. The king chose Helidor Heliodorus, who was in charge of his affairs, and sent him with commands to effect the removal of the aforesaid money. Heliodorus at once set out on his journey, ostensibly to make a tour of inspection of the cities of Cilicia and Phoenicia, but in fact to carry out the king's purpose. When he had arrived at Jerusalem and had been kindly welcomed by the high priest of the city, he told about the disclosure that had been made and stated why he had come, and he inquired whether this really was the situation. The high priest explained that there were some deposits belonging to widows and orphans, and also some money of Hyrcanus, son of Tobias, a man of very prominent position, and that it totaled in all four hundred talents of silver and two hundred of gold. To such an extent the impious Simon had misrepresented the facts. And he said that it was utterly impossible that wrong should be done to these people who had trusted in the holiness of the place and the sanctity and inviolability of the temple which is honored throughout the whole world. But Heliodorus, because of the king's command which he had, said that this money must in any case be confiscated for the king's treasury, so he set a day and went in to direct the inspection of these funds. There was no little distress throughout the whole city. The priests prostrated themselves before the altar in their priestly garments and called toward heaven upon him who had given the law about deposits that he should keep them safe for those who had deposited them. To see the appearance of the high priest was to be wounded at heart, for his face and the change in his color disclosed the anguish of his soul, for terror and bodily trembling had come over the man, which plainly showed to those who looked at him the pain lodged in his heart. People also hurried out of their houses in crowds to make a general supplication, because the holy place was about to be brought into contempt. Women, girded with sackcloth under their breasts, thronged the streets. Some of the maidens who were kept indoors ran together to the gates, and some to the walls, while other peered out of the windows, and holding up their hands to heaven they all made entreaty. There was something pitiable in the prostration of the whole populace and the anxiety of the high priest in his great anguish, while they were calling upon the Almighty Lord that he would keep what had been entrusted safe and secure for those who had entrusted it, Heliodorus went on with what had been decided. But when he arrived at the treasury with his bodyguard, then and there the sovereign of spirits and of all authority caused so great a manifestation that all who had been so bold as to accompany him were astounded by the power of God and became faint with terror. For there appeared to them a magnificently caparisoned horse, with a rider of frightening mien, 
and it rushed furiously at Heliodorus and struck at him with his front hoofs. Its rider was seen to have armor and weapons of gold. Two young men also appeared to him, remarkably strong, gloriously beautiful and splendidly dressed, who stood on either side of him and scourged him continuously, inflicting many blows on him. When he suddenly fell to the ground and deep darkness came over him, his men took him up and put him on a stretcher and carried him away. This man, who had just entered the aforesaid treasury with a great retinue and all his bodyguard, but was now unable to help himself, and they recognized clearly the sovereign power of God. While he lay prostrate, speechless because of the divine intervention, and deprived of any hope of recovery, they praised the Lord, who had acted marvelously for his own place, and the temple, which a little while before was full of fear and disturbance, was filled with joy and gladness now that the Almighty Lord had appeared. Quickly some of Heliodorus's friends asked Onias to call upon the Most High, and to grant life to one who was lying quite at his last breath, and the high priest, fearing that the king might get the notion that some foul play had been perpetrated by the Jews with regard to Heliodorus, offered sacrifice for the man's recovery. While the high priest was making the offering of atonement, the same young men appeared again to Heliodorus, dressed in the same clothing, and they stood and said, be grateful to Onias the high priest, since for his sake the Lord has granted you your life, and see that you, who have been scourged by heaven, report to all men the majestic power of God. Having said this, they vanished. Then Heliodorus offered sacrifice to the Lord, and made very great vows to the Saviour of his life, and having bidden Onias farewell, he marched off with his forces to the king, and he bore testimony to all men of the deeds of the supreme God, which he had seen with his own eyes. When the king asked Heliodorus what sort of person would be suitable to send on another mission to Jerusalem, he replied, If you have any enemy or plotter against your government, send him there, for you will get him back thoroughly scourged, if he escapes at all, for there certainly is about the place some power of God. For he who has his dwelling in heaven watches over that place himself and brings it aid, and he strikes and destroys those who come to do it injury. This was the outcome of the episode of Heliodorus and the protection of the treasury. The previously mentioned Simon, who had informed about the money against his own country, slandered Onias, saying that it was he who had incited Heliodorus and had been the real cause of the misfortune. He dared to designate as a plotter against the government the man who was the benefactor of the city, the protector of his fellow countrymen, and a zealot for the laws. When his hatred progressed to such a degree that even murders were committed by one of Simon's approved agents, Onias recognized that the rivalry was serious and that Apollonius, the son of Menestheus, and governor of Cilicia and Phoenicia, was intensifying the malice of Simon. So he betook himself to the king, not accusing his fellow citizens, but having in view the welfare, both public and private, of all the people. For he said that without the king's attention, public affairs could not again reach a peaceful settlement, and that Simon would not stop his folly. When Seleucus died, and Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason, the brother of Onias, obtained the high priesthood by corruption, promising the king at an interview three hundred and sixty talents of silver, and, from another source of revenue, eighty talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay one hundred and fifty more, if permissible, were give, if permission were given to establish by his authority a gymnasium and a body of youth for it, and to enroll the men of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch. When the king assented and Jason came to office, he at once shifted his countrymen over to the Greek way of life. He set aside the existing royal concessions to the Jews, secured through John the father of Upolemus, 
who went on to the mission to establish friendship and alliance with the Romans, and he destroyed the lawful ways of living and introduced new customs contrary to the law. For with alacrity he founded a gymnasium right under the citadel, and he induced the noblest of the young men to wear the Greek hat. There was such an extreme of Hellenization and increase in the adoption of foreign ways, because of the surpassing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no high priest, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. Despising the sanctuary and neglecting the sacrifices, they hastened to take part in the unlawful proceedings in the wrestling area, arena after the call to the discus, disdaining the honors prized by their fathers and putting the highest value upon Greek forms of prestige. For this reason, heavy disaster overtook them, and those whose ways of living they admired and wished to imitate completely became their enemies and punished them. For it is no light thing to show irreverence to the divine laws, a fact which later events will make clear. When the quadrennial games were being held at Tyre and the king was present, the vile Jason sent envoys, chosen as as being Antiochian citizens from Jerusalem, to carry three hundred silver drachmas for the sacrifice to Hercules. Those who carried the money, however, thought best not to use it for sacrifice, because that was inappropriate, but to expend it for another purpose. So this money was intended by the sender for the sacrifice of Hercules, but by the decision of its carriers it was applied to the construction of triremes. When Apollonius, the son of Menestheus, was sent to Egypt for the coronation of Philometor as king, Antiochus learned that Philometor had become hostile to his government, and he took measures for his own security. Therefore, upon arriving at Joppa, he proceeded to Jerusalem. He was welcomed magnificently by Jason in the city, and ushered in with a blaze of torches and with shouts. Then he marched into Phoenicia. After a period of three years, Jason sent Milan. Menelaus, the brother of the previously mentioned Simon, to carry the money to the king and to complete the records of essential business. But he, when presented to the king, extolled him with an air of authority, and secured the high priesthood for himself, outbidding Jason by three hundred talents of silver. After receiving the king's offers, he returned, possessing no qualification for the high priesthood, but having the hot temper of a cruel tyrant and the rage of a savage wild beast. So Jason, who after supplanting his own brother was supplanted by another man, was driven as a fugitive into the land of Ammon. And Melanaus held the office, but he did not pay regularly any of the money promised to the king. When Sostratus, the captain of the citadel, kept requesting payment for the collection of the revenue was his responsibility, the two of them were summoned by the king on account of this issue. Menelaus left his own brother Lysimachus as deputy in the high priesthood, while Sostratus left Crates, the commander of the Cyprian troops. While such was the state of affairs, it happened that the people of Tarsus and Malus revolted because their cities had been given as a present to Antiochus, the king's concubine. So the king went hastily to settle the trouble, leaving Andronicus, a man of high rank, to act as his deputy. But Menelaus, thinking he had obtained a suitable opportunity, stole some of the gold vessels of the temple and gave them to Andronicus. Other vessels, as it happened, he had sold to Tyre and the neighboring cities. When Onias became fully aware of these acts, he publicly exposed them, having first withdrawn to a place of sanctuary at Daphne near Antioch. Therefore Menelaus, taking Andronicus aside, urged him to kill Onias. Andronicus came to Onias, and resorting to treachery, offered him sworn pledges, and gave him his right hand. 
and in spite of his suspicion persuaded Onias to come out from the place of sanctuary. Then, with no regard for justice, he immediately put him out of the way. For this reason not only Jews, but many of other nations were grieved and displeased at the unjust murder of the man. When the king returned from the region of Cilicia, the Jews in the city appealed to him with regard to the unreasonable murder of Onias, and the Greeks shared their hatred of the crime. Therefore Antiochus was grieved at heart and filled with pity, and wept because of the moderation and good conduct of the deceased, and inflamed with anger he immediately stripped off the purple robe from Andronicus, tore off his garments, and led him about the whole city to that very place where he had committed the outrage against Onias, and there he dispatched the bloodthirsty fellow. The Lord thus repaid him with the punishment he deserved. When many acts of sacrilege had been committed in the city by Lysimachus with the, con with the connivance of Menelaus, and when report of them had spread abroad, the populace gathered against Lysimachus, because many of the gold vessels had already been stolen. And since the crowds were becoming aroused and filled with anger, Lysimachus armed about three thousand men and launched an unjust attack under the leadership of a certain Oranus, a man advanced in years and no less advanced in folly. But when the Jews became aware of Lysimachus's attack, some picked up stones, some blocks of wood, and others took handfuls of the ashes that were lying about and threw them in wild confusion at Lysimachus, Lysimachus and his men. As a result, they wounded many of them and killed some and put them all to flight, and the temple robber himself they killed close by the treasury. Charges were brought against Menelaus about this incident. When the king came to Tyre, three men sent by the Senate presented the case before him. But Menelaus, already as good as beaten, promised a substantial bribe to Ptolemy, son of Doromenes, to win over the king. Therefore Ptolemy, taking the king aside into a colonnade as if for refreshment, induced the king to change his mind. Menelaus, the cause of all the evil, he acquitted of the charges against him, while he sentenced to death those men who had been freed uncondemned, as if they had pleaded even, bore the, even before the Scythians. And so those who had spoken for the city and the villages and the holy vessels quickly suffered the unjust penalty. Therefore even the Tyrian, Tyrians, showing their hatred for the crime, proved magnificently, provided magnificently for their funeral. But Menelaus, because of the cupidity of those in power, remained in office, growing in wickedness, having become the chief plotter against his fellow citizens. Our next recording is Sirach, chapter 31. Wakefulness over wealth wastes away one's flesh, and anxiety about it removes sleep. Wakeful anxiety prevents slumber, and a severe illness carries off sleep. The rich man toils as his wealth accumulates, and when he rests he fills himself with his dainties. The poor man toils as his livelihood diminishes, and when he rests he becomes needy. He who loves gold will not be justified, and he who pursues money will be led astray by it. Many have come to ruin because of gold, and their destruction has met them face to face. It is a stumbling block to those who are devoted to it, and every fool will be taken captive by it. Blessed is the rich man who is found blameless, and who does not go after gold. Who is he? And we will call him blessed, for he has done wonderful things among his people. Who has been tested by it, and has been found perfect? Let it be for him a ground for boasting. Who has had the power to transgress, and did not transgress, and to do evil, and did not do it? His prosperity will be established, and the assembly will relate his acts of charity. Are you seated at the table of a great man? 
do not be greedy at it, and do not say, there is certainly much upon it. Remember that a greedy eye is a bad thing. What has been created more greedy than the eye, what it, therefore it sheds tears from every face. Do not reach out your hand for everything you see, and do not crowd your neighbor at the dish. Judge your neighbor's feelings by your own, and in every matter be thoughtful. Eat like a human being what is set before you, and do not chew greedily, lest you be hated. Be the first to stop eating for the sake of good manners, and do not be insatiable, lest you give offense. If you are seated among many persons, do not reach out your hand before they do. How ample a little thing is! How ample a little is for a well-disciplined man! He does not breathe heavily upon his bed. Healthy sleep depends on moderate eating. He rises early and feels fit. The distress of sleeplessness and of nausea and colic are with the glutton. If you are overstuffed with food, get up in the middle of a meal, and you will have relief. Listen to me, my son, and do not disregard me, and in the end you will appreciate my words. In all your work be industrious, and no sickness will overtake you. Men will praise the one who is liberal with food, and their testimony to his excellence is trustworthy. The city will complain of the one who is niggardly with food, and their testimony to his niggardliness is as accurate. Do not aim to be valiant over wine, for wine has destroyed many. Fire and wine prove the temper of steel, so wine tests hearts in the strife of the proud. Wine is like life to men, if you drink it in moderation. What is life to a man who is without wine? It has been be created to make men glad. Wine drunk in season and temperately is rejoicing of heart and gladness of soul. Wine drunk in excess is bitterness of soul with provocation and stumbling. Drunkenness increases the anger of a fool to his injury, reducing his strength and adding wounds. Do not reprove your neighbor at a banquet of wine, and do not despise him in his merrymaking. Speak no word of reproach to him, and do not afflict him by making demands of him. Our last reading for today is John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. If I bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness to me, and I know that the testimony which he bears to me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony which I received is from man, but I say this, that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, these very works which I am doing, bear me witness that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness to me, his voice that you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you have not the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, him you will receive. How can you believe, who receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. It is Moses who accuses you, on whom you set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?'